Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of my favorite objects is an hourglass. Because it's time rendered physical, visible. And so you ask yourself, how many grams or micrograms does a second weigh when you take off your sandals after going to the beach? How many minutes slip out of the sandals? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Uh, do you have a second? Yeah, yeah, of course. I was wondering, what are you doing on April 20th? Do you have any plans for April 20th, 420? Hold on. ReSound is a remix of music, audio stories, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Today on ReSound, a goodie bag of treats. We have lawyers turned pinball wizards, two extraordinary minds meeting in a field of poetry, And finally, 40 years after the phrase was coined, we have the skinny on 420. You will not believe it when you hear it. I think we probably just looked at each other one night and said, this sucks. For three years, former Third Coast Artistic Director Sarah Geis sat maybe six feet from me. It's an open office here at Third Coast. There is not a smidgen of privacy. As you can imagine, we knew a lot about each other. We shared recipes, family histories. We laughed, we cried, we took our dogs on playdates. But in all that time, there was something I never knew about my good friend Sarah until she made this little piece for the BBC. I hope I can help you today because... I I remember what happened, but I don't remember a ton of the details. But I do remember your mom and dad, they were really looking for something to do outside of the law. That's Steve. Steve and my dad have been best friends since they were teenagers in the 1950s. And when Steve says my parents were looking for something to do outside the law, he doesn't mean like Bonnie and Clyde. He means outside of lawyering. Honestly, at the time, I thought it was the stupidest idea I ever heard. Historically, my parents are not big risk takers. You had just been born, and you lived three doors away, and your parents drove you to my house because it was winter, and they were afraid of falling. That's my mom's friend, Susan. But the year that I was 10 years old, Ruth and Jim threw caution to the wind. They dropped me off at my grandmother's house, went to a job fair, and when they returned, they were Geis and Geis pinball machine distributors. Almost overnight, our house filled with pinball machines and possibility. And then the machines disappeared as mysteriously as they had arrived. I never think about this. This was long enough ago, and I've been so busy in my work life since then. I mean, over till you started talking about it, I don't think I gave it 10 seconds of thought. They haven't wanted to talk about it until now. Because, let's be honest, they're nice Jewish parents who want to support their daughter's career. And it turns out that while 1992 was a very good year for me, my folks were having a hard time. My dad had just left a corporate job that he hated, 
and my mom had just begun her own law practice working from home. But the internet hadn't really happened yet, so finding clients was hard. We were both available for something new. I didn't want to trade commodities. I didn't want to practice law. I didn't know what to do. And some way we saw an advertisement for a, a franchise show at a convention center out by O'Hare Airport. I actually only have a fairly hazy recollection of it. But we came out of it deciding we were, we were going to put pinball machines in bars around the city. And it seems so crazy now. Somehow this was going to be fun, quirky, and make a living. And quirky it was. At least they were following their passions, right? No. I wasn't motivated to be a pinball artist or go around and give demonstrations or anything like that. It was all business. I mean, they were sort of modestly fun to do. We went to the motel where the salesman was sleeping. <laughs> it was at nighttime, I remember that. We went up to his room and discussed whatever the business end of it we had was to discuss. So wait, Dad said that you guys met this salesman again in a hotel room? Yeah, we did. I'm sorry. I'm thinking, once we met a different person in a hotel room who was from the mob, but that had nothing, that had nothing to do with this experience. Once we met a different person in a hotel room who was from the mob? Well, my father owned movie theaters, and... They were just not really doing very well. And this theater, it was called The Highway, started to show porno. And the mob got into the theater business in a big way. They were producing the porno pictures, they were distributing it, and then they wanted to buy the movie theater. Your father, my father, and I went, and we were scared. And we were, and this guy had French cuffs on and cufflinks. We'd say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I mean, we did whatever they wanted. And I think my father was just thrilled and relieved when it was over. By the way, speaking of the mob, do you know why the mafia doesn't like Jehovah's Witnesses? Why? They don't like any witnesses. I think I remember thinking, oh, I guess they're more interesting than I thought. <laughs> I mean, not your pairs. I mean the machines. When you went to a bar to try to sell a machine, what would you say? Hi, we've got these cute little machines here, I guess. That's what we'd say. And a lot of people didn't want them at all. I just thought, who are these people that are like my best friends? <laughs> That's all. I would open up the machine, and uh, that was kind of fun, making sure all the lights went on and off and the, the flippers flipped. He uh, wanted to marry it downtown on Wacker Drive. Mom and I both had to go because if you paid to park, you would lose money. All felt a little confusing to me, and I somehow felt like that I shouldn't ask questions. And uh, that was the worst one. Sometimes there'd be like $6 in there. So while my parents circled the block in despair, I was having a really good time. My friends came over, we played pinball in the living room, we learned to tilt, we stole quarters from my parents' stash. Sorry, parents. And then, less than a year later, it was over. Was there a last straw? I think we probably just looked at each other one night and said, this sucks. I think up until then I had the idea that... Uh, it didn't matter what it was that I could be successful. I think it knocked me down a few pegs. So. Did you get depressed? Yeah, it was depressing. It was depressing, and you know, at the same time, I was going through what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I mean, I it was, it was getting out of the pinball business, but then what? And I can remember to this day. Um, our house on Drexel had those back steps and going out there one night sitting on those steps and saying, what is it if I had my choice to do anything in the world and what would I want to do it? 
and uh, saying, I really want to go back and practice law. What changed between you just not wanting to practice law and then sitting on those back steps and thinking, you know, that's what I really want to do? I suppose owning pinball machines <laughs> was <laughs> considering the alternative. Uh, considered myself a very good and competent lawyer and uh, that I would be good at it and get a lot of pleasure out of it and uh, that that's what I was and that's what I should do. And conveniently, their friend Steve just happened to be having an electronics auction. I said, I'm going to have a big auction, and if you want, I'll get some guys and we'll move the pinballs over to the auction and we'll auction them off. And that was the end of the pinball machine business. Pretty quickly, my mom and dad each found work that made them happier. And all's well that ends well, right? But if they could go back in time, they say, they would not do it all over again. We didn't do it out of a lot of happiness and excitement. I think we did it out of a, a sense of, of loss or a sense of being lost. And I don't, I don't like thinking about that. But I like thinking about it. I don't like that they were lost, but I like that they had the courage to try to make themselves less lost, to leap into the void. And so what if the void threw them right back out like a little silver ball propelled by a plunger on a spring. Dad told me that one of the other franchises that was at that fair was a public payphone franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, we we dodged that bullet. (laughs) Thank God we didn't invest heavily in that. Oh, Lord. (laughs) That was Geis and Geis, Pinball Machine Distributors, produced by our good friend Sarah Geis for Shortcuts on BBC Radio 4. Hey, you want to get high, man? I got a joint here, man. I've been saving for a special occasion. At Third Coast, we've been big fans of the podcast Criminal for a long time. Why? Because the stories are so good and well-crafted, and because the host, Phoebe Judge, just lures you in with a steady pull. Usually, the show deals with some very sobering material. It is about crime, after all. But every once in a while, Phoebe takes a little breather and tackles something lighter and more playful. I've heard this story three or four times, and it still makes me laugh. One warning, though. The story does contain references to smoking and drug use. So what these are, they're mile marker signs, and uh, they're not a lot of roads, frankly, around the state that get to a 420 mile marker. You know, that you've got to have a long highway that can really go across the state to get to a 420, and we have a couple in Colorado, and so consequently, those signs kept getting targeted, especially as people are coming in from Kansas and into Colorado. It was sort of right off the beaten path there, and people like to yank it and uh, take it home as a memento, and especially so if it was a Colorado 420 sign. This is Amy Ford. She's with the Colorado Department of Transportation. The department has been dealing with this for years. A 420 sign gets yanked, they put out a new one, and then that one gets stolen too. What did you what did you do about it? One, we were replacing a lot of signs. And so that was one of those things that our maintenance guys had to go back out because those signs actually do matter. They matter for emergency response and others as they look at those signs to say, hey, this is maybe where an accident was and things like that. So, you know, after a while, our guys got a little tired of having to replace the signs. And one of our maintenance superintendents a while back said, you know, instead of us putting back up a 420 sign, which is just going to get stolen again, what if we put up a 419.99 sign just a tenth of a mile away? Still accurate, still in the right spot, good for emergency service, but it saves us the hassle, baby, of having to have these signs replaced all the time. I think that that one's kind of funnier. I think I'd rather have that one. 
Me too, because it's sort of unique. Definitely from Colorado then, if you know you've got the 41999 sign. We've also done from some other numbers as well. So uh, let's just say we have a 68.99 sign as well. These .99 signs are also getting stolen. And other states with highways long enough to have a 420-mile marker have the same problem. Do you think it's do you think it's funny? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, we in Colorado, I mean, if we can't laugh at some of what's going on here, and when we think about all of the neat stuff that can happen on our roadways or the terrible things that happen on our roadways, someone thinking our one of our signs is clever and yanking it is uh, something that we definitely can laugh at. Do you know what 420 refers to? You know what? I don't entirely, but you know, if I remember correctly, it's one. It's it, in Colorado has become such a big celebration uh, now that I always think of it in regards to all the events that we have here, uh, various events at our civic center and the like. And so, I don't know all of the details actually. If you don't know why someone would want to steal a 420 sign, you aren't alone. Hello, Dad. Yes. Uh, do you have a second? Yeah, yeah, of course. I was wondering, what are you doing on uh, April 20th? Do you have any plans for April 20th, 420? Hold on. On April 20th, I have, there's just some couple of appointments that could be shifted if need be. Does the number 420 mean anything to you? 420. I can't think of a thing. Well, it's, it's a pot thing. Pot? You mean like in dope, like in marijuana? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, like oh, 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 oh. Doesn't, doesn't that have to do with, uh, it's sort of code for people who are, uh, want to let others know that they're, they're marijuana friendly? Isn't that what that is? Yes, marijuana friendly, but it's, it's more, I think it's a... Uh, um, is this being recorded? Are you... Uh, Yes, this is being recorded. The, uh-huh. There should be a red light that goes on so I can I know for sure. We're, we're trying to figure out what 420 refers to specifically. H- had you ever heard that before? Yes, but I don't know now what 420 means. Just that I recognize it as sort of marijuana talk. What do you mean, what does 420 mean? I mean, I don't know where it originates. It's the time at which you smoke weed and is a reference to weed culture. I was, I was in the Navy, actually, when I heard of it. I used to think it was Bob Molly's birthday. I sort of heard uh, it in, high, in middle school, actually. Yeah. I thought it was the police code. No. 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 What does 420 mean? Uh, is it April, April 20th? 420? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a number? Um... It adds up to six. <laughs> um, it sounds like a class that someone should know. Maybe like econ. Econ sounds like it should have a 420. Um, <laughs> I don't know where it came from. All I know is it signifies the plant. And we all get high. Something about marijuana, I think. But I know it's near Earth Day. That's all I really care about. I don't know. I've heard the myth that it is a police code. But I'm fairly confident that's not true. I, I know it's the date, and uh, that's when the people smoke the weed, and they like it a lot to do it on that day. But I'm not, I'm not sure how it came about. No one seems to know exactly where 420 came from, but people have plenty of ideas. Wrong ideas. It's not Bob Marley's birthday. It's not a police code. It has nothing to do with the number of chemical compounds in cannabis. So... We thought we'd try for the actual origin story behind 420. And like all the best stories, it begins with a treasure map. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. (laughs) Uh, The scene, people are wearing uh, bell-bottom blue jeans, uh, what, belts with turquoise in them. We had uh, long hair, afros, uh, vests, vests, uh, leather uh, vests. Sometimes we wore country shirts. Puka shells, and we like country (laughs) western shirts and boots. Bandanas, hiking boots or cowboy boots. It's kind of like some, uh, uh, well, the 70s. It was a hippie uniform back then. This is Steve Capper and Dave Reddicks. They met in 1969 at San Rafael High School in Northern California. 
And you could hitchhike anywhere. You didn't need a car. I mean, I used to hitchhike out to the beach or Point Reyes, and people would pick you up all the time. Everybody helped each other with with rides, food, uh, lodging. Were you stoned? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> all the time. Dave, Steve, and their friends spent most of their free time at school sitting on a wall and eventually got the name The Waldos. And one day, The Waldos got the best news any of them had ever heard. Here's Steve Capper. I was sitting on our hangout spot, the wall, at Centerfall High School. And a friend of mine, Bill, came up to me and he said, Hey, Steve, my brother's in the Coast Guard and he's been growing some weed. He's afraid he's going to get busted by his commanding officer. He says we can pick it. Here's a map he drew for us. Well, Steve approached us and said, do you you guys want to go look for this? We said, of course. You know, we're like teenage boys, free weed. Are you kidding? So we decided we'd, you know, some of us had after school activities after school. uh, And so we decided to meet at 4.20 p.m. at the statue of Louis Pasteur on the campus of San Rafael High School. So we got there and we met up. We uh, fired up a doobie, got high, and we hopped in Steve's 66 Impala with a killer Craig 8-track stereo. And we smoked all the way out there, and we started our search. <laughs> it, it, it looked like a, a scene from Cheech and Chong's, uh, one of their movies, because the, the, we'd get the whole car clouded up with smoke, and we'd be listening to these 8-track uh tapes and we were talking and grooving and having a great time and we were excited to find this patch. Steve, Dave and their friends would meet at the Louis Pasteur statue at 420, pile in the car and continue their search for this dream field of weed every single day after school. We would see each other in the hallways all day long. You know, you go from class to class, you see each other and we would remind each other in the hallways that we were going to meet at Louis at 420. So we'd we look at each other when we pass by, and we go 420 Louis. And, and the other guy would just signal yes, <laughs> nod yes. And it, it was actually, you always smiled when you said it. It was kind of a knowing smile. We're, we're going to get high, we're going to go do that. So it was always exciting. So we'd say 420 Louis. And that went on for a few weeks, but eventually Louis dropped. We dropped off Louis. Well, which, it lasted longer than a few weeks. It was several months, and then we we dropped the Louis part, and it just became 420 as a, a little shorter How did it spread, do you think? Well, you know, we were using the term in high school and other friends picked up on it. And and then their younger brothers and sisters started using it. And then years later, we would see 420 carved into benches and spray painted on walls. And and we started going, hey, this thing is uh, is starting to evolve here. There's something going on. (laughs) It, It kind of boggles my mind what... Uh, started out as a little private secret code joke has now turned into a worldwide phenomenon. A big piece of this is that Dave's brother was friends with Phil Lesh, the bass player in The Grateful Dead. So 420 made the jump from San Rafael High School to the big time pretty quick. And there's (laughs) tons of people that claim they started it, but in, in truth, the Waldos are the only ones that have documented proof to, uh, Prove Phys- our claim. Physic- physical. Lots of physical evidence, yeah. actually. And we keep it, we keep the, the evidence locked in a vault in San Francisco for safekeeping. No, you don't. Yes, yes we, do. we do. You got to remember, it's 40, 45 years old or so. I uh, definitely want to protect it from water, flood, humidity, fire. Uh, this is historical stuff. This physical evidence is a San Rafael High School newspaper from 1974. One of the Waldos was asked, If you had the opportunity to say anything in front of the graduating class, what would you say? And the guy just answered, 420. There's also a 420 flag and then some dated correspondence. Dave wrote me a letter in which he – there's so many references. One, Dave sent me some weed. What what I did is I rolled a joint for him and I smashed it down flat and I put it in the letter and I said – at the end of the letter, I said, P.S., a little 420 for your weekend. And the let, so we have that original letter. It's postmarked. We're talking, you know, early 70s. And so, people ask, why, how, how could you think ahead to save all that stuff? It really wasn't that. We were just too lazy to throw anything away. All of this documentation came in handy late last month 
when 420 was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. I was personally thrilled to learn what the actual origin of this word that I was familiar with in my childhood was. This is Catherine Connor Martin. She's the head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. I can't believe that someone said, let's put 420 in the Oxford English Dictionary, and people are like, yeah, well, sure. We, <laughs> <laughs> Seems right. <laughs> There's, the OED is, what, is a descriptive dictionary of English, and that means that we don't judge whether a word, there's no such thing as being good enough to be entered in the OED. The only criteria that matter are, is it used enough? And this was actually a particularly good example, I think, of a word to add to OED because it's widely known, but there's a lot of misinformation about it. So it's the digits that are in the dictionary. Well, so the main form that we give is 420 as a number, because that's what we found to be the most common when we were looking at evidence. But we also provide several other variants. So we have for hyphen 20, for colon 20, for slash 20, and then um, for hyphen 20 written out as words, because of course it's said 420, even though it is the number, it looks like the number 420. Um, and the, the variety in the punctuation there um, is probably due largely to the fact that it's often interpreted as a time of day or as a date. So when you see that forward slash, someone's thinking of April 20th. And if you see 4 colon 20, they're thinking of the time of 420. Um, this word was challenging for some of our British colleagues to understand because, of course, they abbreviate the months differently. And so for them, it's 24. That a bunch of stone teenagers on a quest for a magical field of marijuana are now part of the definitive record of the English language is just wild. Unfortunately, that's all they took away from it. They never did find that field. Well, I want to tell me about your, I mean, your plan, if you had found it. What was your plan? Our plan was to smoke it. <laughs> we were going to smoke that weed if we found it. This is your legacy. Yeah, I'm sure on our headstones it'll say, these are the guys that started 420. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both very much for speaking with me. This was just great. Yeah, well, thank you for having us. Thank you. And uh, happy 420. And, and thank you for having us to your podcast. <laughs> Well, there we go. Four Twenty was produced by Phoebe Judge and Lauren Sporer for their podcast Criminal. Phoebe and Lauren have another podcast you might want to check out. It's called This Is Love. I, I just completely recognize myself in, in him which I had never done before for anyone else. Coming up after the break, a well-known Australian poet, his autistic translator, and the meeting of two amazing minds. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And we curate the very best on ReSound. 
3995 Daniel Tammet is a poet and translator living in Paris. His world is filled with words, and his voice, as you'll hear, is like a lullaby. He's an autistic savant and had a difficult time connecting with people until one day a book of poems changed all that. Here's producer Martin Johnson. Paris, 2016. It's a Thursday. Thursdays are uh, orange in England. Thursday is an orange word. And in French, jeudi, it's a jeudi, so, so it's a yellow. A yellow, <laughs> a yellow day. Where? In a hurry. There are not many times in one's life that one has the experience of a chance to do something that you have no idea beforehand what's going to happen. Hopefully I'm left very soon. Because it's five o'clock now, so we're late. Ah, well, there we go. With a bit of luck, it will be the next road on the... Paris, two years earlier. So I'm going to... Can I sit next to you? It's always yeah, easier. Of course. Uh. <laughs> this is the recording from the first time. The average human life is between two and three billion seconds long. The first time I met Daniel Tammet. And you ask yourself, what, what are all those seconds for? It's another Thursday, and we're sheltered from the sounds of the old city in a small room where the light falls down on us from a window that frames a blue sky. One of the first things that Daniel Tammet asks me is... What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why are we born? There's a game, I don't know if you play it in Sweden, but I assume you do. It's, in English we say hide and seek, <clears throat> in which you have to close your eyes and count. Usually you count to ten. And then you have to open your eyes and you find whatever it is you have to find. Eight seconds. Well, <clears throat> seven. But what is the meaning of Six, this game that we each of us has to play. Five. Hide and four, seek with the universe. We close our eyes and we count to two or three billion. And then we die. Do we open our eyes and see something very special? Something that makes those two or three billion seconds worthwhile? Who knows? One of my favourite objects is an hourglass. Why? Because it's time rendered physical, visible. Every grain of sand has its uh, weight, has its substance. And so you ask yourself all kinds of questions. How many um, grams or micrograms does a second weigh? Um, when you take off your sandals after going to the beach, how many minutes slip out of the sandals because of the walk on the beach? Um, does your body weigh a day in sand or a week? And if so, does this mean that your stomach weighs A Saturday in sand. Is your head the same weight as a Sunday in sand? Daniel is a savant. It's a neuropsychological syndrome that comes with a lack of cognitive skills. Uh, I was born and raised in London. And on the streets of London there are 
lampposts. And in the winter, when the the day uh, ends quite quickly, the lights come up around uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. And three o'clock is the time that children, at least when I was a child growing up, come home from school. And so when I was coming home from school every day, I would pass these lampposts. And I realised that there were, in the space between one lamppost and the next, there were eight seconds. I counted them. And then I said to myself, well, if I go back and start again, um, how many seconds do I need to get to the, to the middle point between this, the first and the second lamppost? And of course, it was four, because half of eight is four, four seconds. And then you quickly realize that if it takes eight seconds to get there, from one place to another and four to get halfway then it takes two seconds to get one quarter of the way and it takes one second to get one eighth of the way and half a second to get one sixteenth of the way and so on and so on and I thought to myself as this young child how do I manage to get from one lamppost to the next because there is an infinity of fractions possible between the first and the second lamppost why don't I just get lost in all these fractions you can stop at a half or a quarter or an eighth or a sixteenth but you can there's fractions within fractions go on and on forever I was born and raised in London, although I've lived and worked in, in France now for several years. And um, I also have high-functioning autism, Asperger's syndrome. Well, I've found it very difficult to acquire social skills. The skills that I have today that allow me to have this interview with you, to look you in the eye, to know how to respond to your questions and so on. Um, these are skills that didn't come intuitively to me, didn't come naturally to me. I had to learn them as someone learns a foreign language. And today my accent, my social accent is almost gone. But growing up, it was a very difficult and long process. And since my earliest uh, childhood, numbers and words were my friends. I see numbers as... Uh, shapes and colours and textures and emotions and sometimes even as personalities. The number four, for example, is very shy. Well, the number five is the sort of number you'd invite to a party, for example, to dance with and to play lots of music to. And number six is very sad. They feel like people. What are you ashamed of? Well, being autistic, you get things wrong. You say the wrong thing, you hurt people, and uh, you, you, you foul sometimes on a personal level. And that is always very hurtful to me. If I foul a friend or if I foul someone that I once loved, it's always it's particularly painful. And uh, because I have a good, very good memory, I don't forget. I was still living in England at the time. Ten years ago, in 2004, it was on March 14th, which is Pi Day. I recited Pi, the first 22,514 decimals of Pi. 3.141 Pi is to me like a, an immense numerical poem. 
this idea of a number that is bigger than the universe, that even on a piece of paper bigger than the Milky Way, you wouldn't have enough space to write all the digits down. And I learned these lines of this this immense universal numerical poem by heart and took them with me to Oxford. That was the first time I'd done anything like this, done anything in public like this before. Four nine six zero nine four seven two six three nine nine five two zero six one four. The idea of being in a room with filled with people and talking to them was very difficult. But pi was my way of talking to them, was my way of finding a universal language in which to express myself. Your telephone number is somewhere in the digits of pi and will appear an infinite number of times. Your shoe size, your lover's bank card number, every number possible, the date of your birth, for example, is in pi. The date of your death is in pi. Everything is in pi. And the people were listening very closely, in fact. Some of them even cried. Finished. This is what happens next. We leave the room and we walk along the cobblestones of Paris. We decide to have a coffee. It's something that I rarely do. Normally you sit and you listen and you enter the world of the person next to you. You fall into them. But this time we sit down and we talk about Kierkegaard. We talk about the moments in life where the only thing you can do is jump. Jump into the unknown. The unknown for where there is no language. And this is the moment when Daniel Tammet tells me about the poet Thess Murray. It was uh, over 10 years ago now, so we're going back to maybe 2002, 2003. Daniel is standing in a bookshop, the poetry section, where he follows the letters in alphabetical order. Back at the time when I was still living in England, in the south of England, in Kent, a, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L. If I remember correctly, there were uh, almost no one else in, in, in the shop at that moment. L. Les Murray. And I just stumbled on a book by Les Murray. And I think it was his um, poems the size of photographs. And I opened it up and I started reading and I didn't stop until I'd finished everything. I I felt... Alive, completely alive. That I was bringing it to life by seeing all these colours and all these emotions in my head. What kind of colours? Purple. Uh, and silver. Uh, and uh, then blue, like Les. And uh, I, lo- I loved the the... the the, the purple and the blue together, and then the the just the openness, the sprawl, as he calls it, this idea that English just opens worlds, opens vistas, that words are passports to other worlds, which is like this one, but just slightly different, and that's how I felt always part of this world but slightly different slightly at a distance belonging is something that it's something that other people decide for you I wanted to belong desperately as a child I had dreams about uh, making friends and uh, fitting in but didn't know how 
I always there was always something that let me down the way that I said something the way that I asked for something or it was like a shibboleth like in the bible when you they they want to pass and they you have to pronounce this word and I could never get the pronunciation right and so I never I always gave myself away as fundamentally different in some way just the sensation of of reading something that completely resembled what I felt and how I thought and how I saw the world and how I expressed the world in 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 words it was like an electric shock I felt finally that I had my own passport that I had this uh, I could I could say to people I I belong I I just completely recognized myself in, in him which I had never done before for anyone else he had a son one of his sons was uh, autistic and he had written poetry about his son's autism and it was later it wasn't straight away later I discovered and identified himself as being on the autistic spectrum as well after this first meeting we say goodbye and the years start to pass Daniel and I we write to each other I say to Daniel let's go to Australia let's meet the man who gave you a language for yourself let's go there so you can talk to him the other poet but nothing happens and suddenly it's 2016 Daniel writes to me Les is coming to Paris and Daniel is meeting him hello Daniel works as a writer, a poet and a translator. Language comes easy to him like numbers. Once, he learned Icelandic in a week. Now, Les Murray wasn't translated into French. So Daniel Tamat took Les's world into the French language. He has captured Les Murray's writing, presenting it into one book. And because of that, today they are seeing each other in person. What's this? It's well, it's one of his postcards that he sent me. It's a Chinese lady on the cover. I'm not sure why exactly a Chinese lady on the cover. Um, and he's almost not left enough space for the address. And, he's <laughs> and they're going to sit on a stage together in front of an audience, presenting Daniel's work. And Les has asked Daniel for a favour. There is one poem that Daniel left out in the book that he didn't translate into French. One of his poems that he's, he's known for is the poem he wrote 20 years ago about his autistic son. And it's a poem that describes autism and describes his son's behavior as an autistic. It's a very powerful poem. And precisely for that reason, I didn't translate it. It was just too powerful for me. It resembled... It didn't... Well, it's not... The autism is not the one that I had. But at the same time, there were points of similarity, of course. I was uh, in my 20s when I read this poem for the first time. I found it very intense. I think the first time I read it, it was so intense. It was a little bit like when I would go to the cinema and feel overwhelmed by a film's images and uh, emotions conveyed by the images. I could understand it, whereas a lot of other readers, people I showed it to, didn't. And uh, so I, yeah, it just felt too too close to me to translate it. But why? Maybe intimidated by it and also ashamed. I guess I felt ashamed. Ashamed of being autistic in some way. Now, as a favour to Liz Murray, Daniel has translated the poem. Do you know where we're going? Yes. So the French listeners will at least get to hear it once. Mm-hmm. Hi. 
suddenly we're back where we start. Are we in a hurry? And Daniel is walking to meet Les Murray. Not too much, um, but... Uh, it's a Thursday. Thursdays are, are orange in England. A yellow Thursday in Paris. And in French, jeudi, it's a jeudi, so, so it's a yellow. A yellow, <laughs> a yellow day. Did get hit? <laughs> yeah, sorry, hello. <laughs> Stage, a theatre. Merci d'être venu si, si nombreux ce soir. The room is quiet, filled with people. Daniel is standing in front of them. He holds the microphone with both hands. Uh, I'm a writer. And Les Murray is sitting on a chair behind him. And an essayist. I'm also Les Murray's translator in French. Let me um, introduce you very quickly to, to Les. Les Murray was born in Australia in 1938 to a family of dairy farmers. And he uh, didn't know that he had high-functioning autism. Um, it didn't exist at the time. And in spite of the bullying that he endured, in spite of the, the difficulties, the misunderstandings, the frustrations that he experienced growing up, he learned to transform poverty into poetry. He transformed bullying into beauty. And uh, he became over the years, English language's poet laureate. There's probably only about... How many of you are there in the world? Uh, autistic savants. They like you. Hello. Four to one years in between them. Uh, maybe 50 or 100. Not many. I hold the microphone with both hands and something happens in the room. Well, in a way, I, I, I consider that you are, you are like an autistic savant, no? And I got little, little streaks of, uh, of it, but um, I know what it is. I realise that this is a meeting not for me. You feel like you don't belong. You can't ever belong. And you know that feeling. But for that... Avoiding human company and various... Yes. Wonderful, yes, he knows, he knows. <laughs> Until I was uh, 16 years old, nobody ever treated me strangely. And then suddenly, everything I said was ridiculous. And I watched them understand each other. And I see their two worlds meet. You just... you. you too different for people to, uh, to, to, to handle you, to manage you, and you don't know why they're, uh, they're strange about it, you know. And, and the way that people didn't matter much to you at all, they barely existed. But I, I'd grown up so far out in the bush that I didn't know a lot of things. Like a mate of mine had to say one day after about four months, he said, Liz, he said, you better take up wearing underwear. Aye. You know, underpants and stuff. What for? Uh, well, people do that, and if you don't do it, your clothes smell and they, they keep away from you. Ah. So I took up wearing, <laughs> wearing underwear for a few years, you know. Stage. There's a portrait in line scan at 15, right? Daniel is sitting on a chair. On a big screen behind him, I can read Les Murray's poem in French. Yeah, we've got a son who's uh, uh, what they call autistic. It's Daniel's words to Les Murray's words. And uh, we discovered this when he was about three. And in that room, they meet. And we realised we had a big problem on our hands. We didn't know anything about handling handicapped children. Uh, but we were going to have to learn on the job. And this is the story of learning on the job. He retains a slight margin accent from the years of single phrases. He no longer hugs to disarm. It's gradually allowing him affection. He no longer hugs to disarm. It is gradually allowing him affection. He does not allow proportion. Distress, Distress is absolute. Is absolute. Shrieking and runs him at frantic speed through crashing doors 
He liked cyborgs. Their taciturn power, their intonation. It still runs him around the house, alone, in the dark, cooing and laughing. He can read about soils, populations and New Zealand. On neutral topics, he's literate. Arnie Schwarzenegger is an actor. He isn't a cyborg, really. Is he, Dad? He lives on 40 acres with animals and trees and used to draw it continually. He knows the map of Earth's fertile soils and can draw it freehand. He can only lie in a panicked shout. Sorry, he can sorry, only lie in a panicked shout. Sorry, sorry, I didn't do when it. When he ran away constantly, it was to the greengrocers to worship stacked fruit. His favourite country was the Ukraine. It is nearly all deep, fertile soil. Giggling, he climbed all over the dim Freudian psychiatrist who told us how autism resulted from refrigerator parents. When asked to smile, he photographs a rictus smile on his face. It long forbade all naturalistic films. They were adult movies. If they are bad... If they, that is he, are bad, the police will put them in hospital. He sometimes drew a farm amid Chinese or Balinese rice terraces. When a runaway, he made uproar in the police station playing at three times adult speed. Only animated films were proper. Who framed Roger Rabbit then authorised the rest? Phrases spoken to him he would take as teaching and repeat. When he worshipped fruit he screamed as if poisoned when it was fed to him. A one-word first conversation. Belaine. Yes. Yes, Blaine, that's right, Blaine. That's right, baby. Blaine. Blaine. He has forgotten nothing. He has forgotten nothing. And remembers the precise quality of experiences. It requires rulings. Is stealing very playing up as bad as murder? He counts at a glance, not looking, and he has never been lost. When he ate only nuts and dried fruit, words were for words dire were for dire he knows emergencies. All the of fowls and the of he knows all the breeds of fowls and the counties of Ireland. He'd begun to talk, then returned He'd begun to, babble, to talk, then, then resumed to babble and silence. Two Poets by Swedish producer Martin Johnson was originally broadcast on Seriously from BBC Radio 4. Before we go, I just want to tell you about something we have up our sleeve. Coming up in May, Third Coast is heading to the West Coast to host a number of workshops and meetups. If you're in or around the Bay Area, check out our schedule at thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, resound. All diamonds, no rough.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.